The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, February 28th. In today's news, a surging Bernie Sanders shows few signs of making nice with Democrats. The U.S. is poised to sign a peace deal with the Taliban. And Arctic drilling operators can't accurately pinpoint polar bear dens, which means they can't avoid destroying them. But first, the big idea. Officials at the Department of Health and Human Services sent more than a dozen workers to receive the first Americans evacuated from Wuhan, China, the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, without proper training for infection control or appropriate protective gear. That is according to a whistleblower complaint from a senior HHS official based in Washington who oversees workers at the Administration for Children and Families, a unit within HHS. The workers did not show symptoms of infection and were not tested for the virus, according to lawyers for the whistleblower. The whistleblower is seeking federal protection, alleging she was unfairly and improperly reassigned after raising concerns about the safety of her workers to HHS officials, including those within the Office of Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar. She was told on February 19th that if she does not accept a new position in 15 days, which is March 5th, she would be terminated. The complaint alleges HHS staffers were improperly deployed and were not properly trained or equipped to operate in a public health emergency situation. The complaint also alleges that workers were potentially exposed to coronavirus because appropriate steps were not taken to protect them and staffers were not trained in advance on how to wear personal protective equipment, even though they had face-to-face contact with returning passengers. In some instances, the complaint says the teams were working alongside personnel from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention who were wearing full gowns, gloves, and hazmat attire. Several people within HHS voiced concerns about sending these ACF personnel to receive passengers, according to another person familiar with the internal conversations who's not tied to the whistleblower. Meanwhile, at the White House, Vice President Pence seized control of messaging amid mounting criticism of his qualifications for overseeing the government's response. Pence is trying to project a sense of steady control. He appointed a doctor, Ambassador Debbie Burks, to serve as the White House response coordinator, He enforced tight control of the government's public communications, and he added new members to the task force aimed at containing the spread. Trump, on Thursday, for his part, continued to downplay the threat, again trying to blame the media and Democrats for creating panic where he says there should be none. In an effort to combat further fragmented messaging, Pence has moved to seize control of all federal communications related to the virus. In fact, he sent a directive requiring all cabinet officials and any government experts to get written clearance from his office before making any public remarks about the virus. That's according to two senior administration officials. Pence's assertion of control came after Trump lashed out and grew frustrated about some of the public statements made by government officials warning the public that the spread of coronavirus is inevitable. The president viewed that as overly alarmist. This Pence order drew immediate criticism from Democrats, who warned that this is the vice president attempting to suppress critical health information that the public needs to hear. One senior administration official, 
who was involved in the response, says that many people internally are confused about how exactly the response will be run. This official, who spoke on condition of anonymity and again is involved in the response, used a combination of expletives to describe the situation. The official said problems with a government-created coronavirus test have limited the U.S. government's capacity to rapidly increase testing now that there's been a confirmed case of community transmission in Northern California. The White House official charged with leading the U.S. response to deadly pandemics generally left nearly two years ago as his global health security team was disbanded. He wasn't replaced. Despite the mounting threat of a coronavirus outbreak in the U.S., Trump says he has no regrets about those actions and that expertise and resources, he says, can be quickly ramped up to meet the current needs. Experts disagree. As Tom Inglesby, the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, puts it, you build a fire department ahead of time. You don't wait for a fire. And markets are on track for their worst week since the financial crisis. European markets fell sharply in trading while you were sleeping, led by losses in the travel and resources sectors. Earlier, benchmark indexes in Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Shanghai all slumped, despite indications that the coronavirus outbreak may be slowing in China. And U.S. stock futures point to further losses on Friday on Wall Street. South Korea now has 2,300 confirmed cases, the largest hotspot outside of China. And Mongolia's president was put under a 14-day quarantine after traveling for just a day to China. And Japan just announced that it is going to scale back the Olympic torch relay. It was due to start in Fukushima on March 26th. A spokesman for the Japanese government says that though the procession may be downsized, it won't be canceled. And the International Olympic community just put out a statement overnight saying that they remain fully committed to moving ahead with the games as scheduled. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, Bernie Sanders spoke of love and compassion on the day he won the Nevada caucuses last week, extolling the power of bringing people together and telling a crowd, you look beautiful from here. Signs of what some top aides said was Sanders' new focus on unity, especially within the Democratic Party. Yet in just the past few days, the senator from Vermont has angered Florida Democrats with his praise for Fidel Castro. He's upset some Jewish leaders with sharp criticism of the pro-Israel group APAC, and his campaign has preemptively spurned billionaire rival Mike Bloomberg's offer to help fund his campaign in the general election. These disputes with other Democrats, even as he cements a position atop the presidential primary field in national polls, are prompting nervousness and alarm among many of them over whether Sanders can set aside his decades-old habits of combativeness and confrontation to bring the party together to take on a president they all revile. In a recognition of these fractures, Democratic leaders, including Nancy Pelosi, have begun saying openly that some down-ballot party candidates may run on non-Sanders positions if he's the nominee. Congresswoman Donna Shalala, the Democrat from Florida who served in Bill Clinton's cabinet, spoke on the House floor yesterday afternoon in support of a bill condemning Sanders' comments that praised Castro's literacy program. She called Sanders' comments misguided, ill-informed, hurtful, and unacceptable. Adding to the Democratic anxiety, some are concerned about the small number of black voters among his audiences this week in South Carolina, which suggests that he may still be struggling to attract that pillar of the Democratic coalition. Jeff Weaver, a senior advisor to Sanders, dismissed these concerns. He says Democratic loathing for Trump will ultimately bring everyone together. Number two, 
An Afghan army sergeant pulled down his shirt collar to reveal a thick, jagged scar across his neck. Five years ago, he told my colleagues Susanna George and Marja, the Taliban kidnapped him, slit his throat, and left him for dead. But Sergeant Abdul Rashid Karwan says that's the past. Now, he's ready for peace. In one of Afghanistan's most volatile provinces, cautiously optimistic about a peace deal that's set to be signed between the U.S. and the Taliban on Saturday, Karwan and his men did something that would have been unthinkable even a week ago. They invited Taliban fighters to lunch. One of his soldiers shouted, We'll bring a good chicken for you, across the rocky farmland of Helmand province, toward a fighter on a motorcycle with a rifle slung over his shoulder. The lunch offer came on the fourth day of a seven-day period of reduced violence between U.S.-backed Afghan forces and the Taliban. The Taliban controls or contests more than half of Helmand's districts, and this once active front line, like half a dozen others around the province, had fallen almost completely silent. As of Thursday, Helmand had not seen a single significant break of the violence reduction agreement. From farming villages to remote outposts on the edges of tightly held Taliban districts, fighters and civilians said they were relieved by the pause in violence, but many said they fear more bloodshed after the expected signing of the deal this weekend, which hinges on violence remaining low through Friday. U.S. negotiators in Qatar insist that this period of reduced violence was a measure necessary to build confidence between Taliban and Afghan government forces. The question, though, is whether it will hold. Number three, a method used by fuel companies to avoid polar bear dens before they search for oil or gas works less than half the time. That failure could pose a grave risk to mothers and their cubs in the dens, which are hidden under ice, if the Trump administration finalizes its plans, as they are soon poised to do, to expand drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. According to a new study published in the journal PLOS One, infrared technology mounted on airplanes missed 55% of dens that were known to exist west of the Alaskan Refuge, which is off Prudhoe Bay. Oil operators search for the dens to comply with a federal requirement to build roads and facilities at least a mile away from hibernating bears, whose shrinking populations are designated as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. Since the 1990s, mining operations have used surveillance technology known as forward-looking infrared to identify the heat signature of maternal bears that bore as deep as four meters under thick ice to give birth. But this technology is often disrupted by bad weather that blinds its to dens in some surveys and causes it to falsely identify dens in others that don't actually exist. According to the Bureau of Land Management, a division of the Interior Department, Trump's plan to drill in Anwar could adversely impact native hunting, water quality, greenhouse gas emissions, other types of air pollution, and accelerate the breakup of permafrost. It could also result in oil spills and unintended boat strikes on marine mammals. Bears stand to be especially impacted by airstrips and well pads, miles of oil pipelines, storage sites, a sewage treatment plant, and 200 miles of roads. Failing to correctly identify dens could have serious consequences. Polar bear mothers could be chased out of their dens by development activity like seismic testing and road building before cubs are strong enough to survive the rigors of life on the Arctic terrain. The animals could also be crushed or buried alive. Pregnant mothers dig into the snowdrifts in November and December, their babies are born weighing about a kilogram around New Year's Day. 
Before they emerge in the spring, the mothers nurse them, drawing on stores of fat. But if these mothers are disturbed or the dens are destroyed and they leave prematurely, all that is lost. It's not going to end well for those little cubs. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, February 28th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you on Monday.